Hey, what's going on, guys? This is Adam Menner from the Business of Strength podcast. We have an awesome guest here, so I know um, he's been circulating around the interwebs, and I wanted to bring him on here and talk about not only his in-depth training um, principles, but also just his business, and he has a really cool story. So without further ado, Alex, what's going on? Hey, man. Hey, Adam. I appreciate you having me on. It's, uh, it's great. I love doing these things. For sure. So, I mean, we were just talking about this, guys, um, for you guys who are coming on, and this will obviously be on YouTube and on our podcast, but um, Alex was just telling me kind of that transition he made, and I think we might pick up there a little bit. So give us a, a background of where you were in your clinic, and, and what was the deciding factor to be like, you know what, I'm going to double down on myself and go all in on my business. Yeah, so I so I started as, well, I am an exercise physiologist. I you know started university, did kinesiology. Um, initially wanted to be a physiotherapist, but, you know, did, you know, thousands of hours of um, clinical rotations and internships and just wasn't for me. Um, I just, you know, through my experience, I just realized that um, the, the industry at that time, or maybe it was just experience I was having, you know, just doing the basic rehab stuff like the ultrasound and, and all that stuff, which was you know, really like the muscle based approach and looking at muscles in isolation, that just wasn't for me. And I played sports growing up, I played competitive hockey and rugby and a bunch of other sports. And so I really liked that strength conditioning aspect. Sure. But the cool thing is, is in Canada, the exercise physiology or the physiologist, you're able to do both rehab as well as the strength conditioning. So you can do like the VO2 max tests for the professional athletes. Oh, cool. Or you can work in a clinic and just do like, like, like rehab pain. But it was really where I really found when I got in the industry, um, it's been about eight, nine years now. Um, you know, there was a huge divide between the rehab and the training. And I was kind of saw myself as, as in the middle of it. Like I'd work with people who had acute injuries, um, intermediate injuries, and then long-term persistent pain. Um, but also working with, athletes and professional athletes. And yeah. so working both those realms, you know, allowed me to really hone in on, you know, focusing on you know, the movement aspect of things and how the body really works um, rather than just this superficial level of just thinking about how muscles work and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you know, I worked in a bunch of clinics after graduating my post-grad in exercise physiology. Um, I worked in the collegiate setting. Um, where I was director of return performance at the university here, which in Canada, the universities aren't like the States where we have like a D1 and D2 and stuff like that. It's, you know, this, we don't have the funding in sports much like the States. So, right. um, but my school, the school that I was, I was working at at the university of Toronto, it, it would be considered to be a division one in relation to the States. And so I was basically overseeing um, you know, consulting on all the teams like football, soccer, swimming, hockey, um, basketball, and basically consulting on all the teams to make sure that the players were, you know, staying healthy, uh, modifying the program. I mean, the football team, like we completely overhauled the program and limited back squatting, at least for the first, you know, three or four months of the off season and just focus on like, front squats you know, double kettlebell front squats, trap bar deadlifts, stuff like that, just to take right. off of their body. So I left there and then went to another clinic 
worked there for two years. I really went there and cold called them and said, hey, you guys don't have this kind of hybrid type um, part of your business. Would you guys be interested? And so we agreed, you know, that I would come in and I would basically build that wing of the business by myself. So I built that to, you know, quite profitable business within their clinic. Um, and then there was a little bit of, you know, disagreement on, you know, the values that, you know, we shared, you know, I was very, always very, I want to help the client. I want the best for the client. I'm only going to recommend what I believe is going to help that person. And money would come after if I provide a good product, good results, and I'm genuine, then, you know, they're going to refer people and they're going to stay. Um, you know, they didn't disagree. And so what I decided, you know, uh, there's also a lot of contract things, but what I decided was I would just go out on my own. I decided to leave and I decided to start my own business. Um, just going to clients' houses basically. And so I started doing that and I started building that out. And then, yeah, I mean, I've always been entrepreneurial when I was younger, I was 13 years old, I believe. Um, there was a local grocery store in my neighborhood uh, where there was a lot of older like seniors who would go and go shop and you know, they couldn't carry their groceries and stuff. So it started by me carrying their groceries and you know, and paying me five bucks or something. Okay. Right. And it came into, hey, how can I do this where um, I'm actually doing the grocery shopping for them and then delivering it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, was is like I was 13 I couldn't drive right right oh so I would just go there walk around carry the groceries and then take it to their house but it just wasn't school came into play and I couldn't do that anymore so I've always wanted to work for myself so for me even though I was pushed into this situation I was you know really excited to to get into working for myself and so, for yeah. sure yeah it was just super important I mean a couple of things there I think for me and just working with athletes and you said you were in the clinical, uh, just rewinding a little bit, how does that work in terms of like what you believe your protocol is and what theirs is, even in terms of like the insurance realm. So a lot of coaches that I know that work, we work with, they all have, they have PTs that rent from them. So let's say you own a facility. I'm a PT. I come in, I pay you a fixed rate and mm -hmm. then I have to go out and get my own clients though. Where's the separation between like true physical therapy where you need to, you know, go through your insurance or versus like more of kind of, I think our holistic style approach where it's like, we're going to actually try this first. Well, it's almost like a separation between state and church, if you will. Does that make sense? Or kind of like, where was like the dividing line for you? Well, for me, if, um, you know, the reality is, is like, I never did any insurance stuff like right. Canada again, like, I'm considered a medical professional, but I wasn't covered by insurance. And mm -hmm. so, you know, people had to invest in it. And I preferred that, right? I worked at a clinic where I would be under a treatment plan, under a physio, right? A physiotherapist where yeah. they, they were supposed to be monitoring me, but you know, they were just like, Hey, I'm going to do the manual stuff. You do the exercise stuff. Right. And yeah. so I had a great relationship with the first clinic that I was working with, with a bunch of the therapists, but to me, I always felt um, like a lot of the, you know, it's just terrible to say, it's not all of them, but a lot of the therapists that I worked with were, were quite, 
you know, conservative in their treatment, so to say, like, like, oh, like, I just want to make sure that I'm not going to break them. Whereas I'm like, you know what, let's assess, let's see how much we can push. If we're pushing a little too hard, let's, let's pump back a little bit. But I never hurt anybody. And right. as, as you said, like we had this holistic approach. So I came into it with the understanding that it's not just the area of pain that is the problem, right? Like if it's a shoulder that's hurting, it's not always the shoulder. And likely it's never really the shoulder 95% of the time. It's from other things, right? It's, I don't have the ability to expand a certain region of my rib cage. I don't have the ability to, you know, pronate my foot as I'm walking. So these other compensatory things going on. Um, and then from that, it's like, I want to get people standing as quickly as possible because the reality is, especially if it's an athlete, yeah. be lying on the back, breathing all the time, right? Like oh, they need no. to be up and moving and they don't want to feel like they're broken. And so that's really what I tried to do. Um, and that's really how my training process kind of came to light where I was taking a bunch of courses where you would lie on your back and breathe, or you do these low level exercises. And I was like, well, isn't lunging very similar or isn't squatting very similar to like a 90, 90 position right. a way that we can like manipulate that. So, you know, whether it's supported, like they're holding onto something or whether I elevate their heels, like, is there a way to be able to transfer over this more effectively because lying on your back breathing and then sprinting, they just do not go together, right? We're jumping. And so, um, you know, for me, it was like, I wanted to be as least conservative as possible, still represent or still appreciating any type of healing time that somebody may need. Right. But you know, if somebody twisted their ankle, you know, we're going to identify what that person does not have at the foot, at the hip, at the shoulder, the thorax, and we're going to give them that because that's really what we are doing. Mm -hmm. Identify what they don't have and then give them that. Right. For sure. No. And I think that's super important. That's why, you know, just going through the information that you do. And, and obviously I'm a, being director of training here in education for our staff. We are very fortunate where our sample size is ginormous. I mean, we have 200 athletes we work with, 300 adults we have. So like you're talking about a ginormous case study of like we could just go through and easily solve a lot of problems. And I loved that in terms of a lot of the material that you put out regarding, you know, performance training or movement training is rehabilitation training. It is. Yeah. And I think you can't separate the two, right? Is whereas how am I going to get buy-in from my MBA guys and tell them, hey, guys, the first 15 minutes of this session, we're going to do supine respiration work and you're going to reach towards the ceiling for you know, X amount of time. It's like by that time, it's out. You know, it's, out of, it's out of the equation. So with that, let's switch gears quick. <clears throat> for your athletes, and we'll talk about adults because we need to serve kind of both communities here. But with the athletes, what's a very basic rudimentary assessment that you can take people through? that you can almost scale, meaning like no one's going to have your direct knowledge, but what can you give to somebody that they could be like, Hey, look, I applied this and I made a difference in the athletes that I'm working with. Yeah. So interestingly enough with, and I know we're going to get into this, but you know, with COVID as relates to what I was going to talk about, but with yeah. COVID, um, I've had to essentially move things virtually. And so I couldn't be there to assess people. And because of that, that's actually really, like reinforced my ability to assess and manipulate the assessment 
so that the client that was assessing or that, that I'm assessing, they're not cheating in some way. Like they're actually doing what their body is able to do. Right. In my opinion, every assessment should be like, even if you cue it, even if you cue the assessment, they still are still expressing what they actually have. Right. Okay. So, um, so from that, I had to modify a lot of things where they're more active movements. And the reality is with athletes, if you have 200 athletes or you have, you know, like a football team or something like that, like you're going to need to have this type of systemic process um, where they can't cheat. So I really like looking at bodyweight squats, right? Um, you know, the fact is, it's like our brain processes information through sequence. So we've got to look at the feet, then the knees, then the, the hips, and then the rib cage. It's like, are they able to squat to 90 or below? Do they shift in their hips at all? Do they shift to the right? Do they shift to the left? Um, do their knees cave in or do they have to push their knees out? Do they arch their back? You know, I, I get a lot of information by seeing where people's shirt crease because that tells me where they're compressing right. or extending, right? So if you look at the back of an athlete and you look at their shirt, you can see where they're arching their back. And that extension or that arching is their inability to um, get internal rotation at their hips. So now I've identified, okay, well, they don't have hip internal rotation because they're arching through their back. Their knees are caving in or their feet are turning out, which again shows me that they don't have internal rotation. Right. And, or, and then they are kind of pitching their trunk forward. Again, they don't have the ability to express that movement. So squatting, so body weight squats, um, toe touches, toe, toe touches touch. are my favorite, right? Toe touch my favorite feet together. Um, keeping the legs relatively locked, not hyperextended, but like maybe like a five degree bend and then just them touching their toes. And the great thing, that's my favorite one for a, a group of people, because what you can do is you can say, okay, who can touch their toes? Hands go up. Who can touch to their knees? Another group who can touch the mid shin. Great. You're going to be doing deadlift with your heels elevated. You're going to be doing with your toes elevated. Right. You're going to be doing it with uh, just normal, platform, bare feet on the ground, right? And so you're able to do that. Um, and then the last one I would say from a group perspective would be like an Apley's test, which essentially you take your right arm and you try and going behind your back, you're trying to grab your left or trying to touch your left shoulder blade. And again, from that, you're gonna get like three different variations, really. People who, when they reach back, they're so stiff, or they don't have the internal rotation that their hand basically stops on their lower back. Right. People who get to the mid back and people who get to the shoulder blade and each present with different limitations. If you can get to your lower back, then only, or only your lower back, that tells me you don't have the ability to internally rotate your shoulder at all. Right. Um, I divide internal rotation into two components. One, you have the ability to expand your sternum because internal rotation is related to expansion of the 
anterior chest. So your ability to um, get your pump handle. If you look at breathing mechanics, your sternum's like your pump handle. So if you have that and then the manubrium, the manubrium is related, is where your sternoclavicular joint is or the, the bony part at the top of your sternum. That is more of a measure of zero degrees of shoulder flexion and um, shoulder extension, which is internal rotation. So if I can get to my mid back, I can expand my sternum. If wow. I can get to my shoulder blade, then I can expand my manubrium. So I have my entire chest wall. So squat, toe touch, applies are pretty much the assessments that I would say if I was in a group setting, I can get the most information from. Um, but, to but again, I can narrow that down probably just to toe touch and understand what's going on. For sure. And I mean, we could die. I mean, it's twofold because I know a lot of people aren't very familiar with like respiration strategies and some PRI as like, I know you all and I've taken their courses, but I know a lot of coaches see the value in it, but I think the group setting for sure makes a huge difference. And so something that we've done here at Varsity House is I love to give autonomy to our athletes so they can cognitively feel what's right and wrong within their body. So like we've broken them up. I create this little sheet. We just do an upper lower. And then do it together and then we'll just give them, hey, check or minus. I can do it or I can't do it. And it's interesting because like most athletes intuitively, unless they're at the highest level, they don't even know why something may or may not be wrong. Exactly. Yeah. And I think by like giving the coach that ability to give the athletes that freedom, you also get trust and buy-in because there's such a high level of engagement as opposed to, and you know this and I know this. I am not going to take an athlete, an NBA athlete, through a 60-minute assessment to do every single thing. Hey, you're going to get on the table. We're going to do our table test. Then we're going to do our movement test. Then I want to do respiration tests. Then we're going to do right-left pump mechanics. It's, it's too much. Yeah. You know, even for the highest level of guys. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say that you know, you're absolutely right. When I first got into this industry, and people have heard me say it all the time, I had like 70 assessment measurements. Like right. I test everything because of the fact I didn't know what was important. Or what actually was happening, right? I was like, okay, well, I'm from this course, they want me to do this. From this course, they want me to do that. Okay, great. I'm just going to use all of it. Yeah. And the reality is I didn't use any of it, right? Like none of them made my decisions in terms of programming. And so you're absolutely right. Like my toe touch, I divide into three. It's like, again, can you get your knees? Can you get your mid shin? Can you get your toes? Click one, two, or three. You're right. And then Apley's, same thing. One is you can your lower back, two, mid back, a three, um, you know, uh, yeah, you're more shoulder. And so now you're like, okay, well, the reality is, is if I have somebody who takes their shoulder and, and does the apples and can only get to the low back, well, I know they probably don't have very good shoulder flexion. So I'm not going to do overhead stuff until I clear that up. Right. So maybe I'll be doing chest presses angled down at a 45 degree angle or i can do you know chest flies at 90 or you know what i mean like i can okay. i can manipulate the exercise this person's going to do a backwards bear crawl that person's going to do a forwards bear crawl right you're able to manipulate the exercises based on it but you're right like when you do a toe touch what does everybody say oh yeah it's my hamstrings again you can identify by where which part of the hamstring they feel right or they don't have the movement right some people are like yeah i feel right behind my knee 
Other people say they feel it at the like base of their butt, essentially, right? And so now you're like, hey, do you feel that anymore? No. And guess what? I can even palm the ground now because of the modification we made. Wow. And then the result is your buy-in as well, right? So. Absolutely. I think let's just take one step back just for some listeners who may not be familiar with some of the PRI work and what have you. Sure. And so let's just talk about why these assessments are so important, right? In, in terms of like the, the word global is tossed around a lot, but let's just talk about the uh, origin, if you will, of why these assessments matter so much, if you will. You know what I mean? Maybe consolidate a little bit. Up. Yeah. So, you know, I always say that assessments will dictate, you know, the exercise that you give. Yeah. I, I, like, I, I always say that this, I always say to everybody, um, you know, it's not that I necessarily like the movie Willy Wonka like crazy, but it's just like the best analogy that I can think of when it comes to assessment. There's a scene, (laughs) (laughs) and there's a scene in Willy Wonka where, you know, they go into this room and, you know, he's like, you can mix any candy you want together. And so what you do is you click a bunch of buttons, you blueberry, chocolate, all these different things, and then out of the machine comes this configuration of the candy that you've selected. No different than the assessment. The assessment are just the buttons, and then that will spew out the exercise. That's the way that I see it, is the assessment is going to tell me what this person needs and what exercise to give them. Right? If I have somebody who's squatting and they're shifting to the right, then I may give them a left front foot elevated split squat, compared to maybe a normal split squat or rear foot elevated split squat. And to me, that kind of, which is like, it's going to, you know, upset some people, but that's where I think that regression and progression models may be a little bit flawed from an exercise perspective. Like a split squat is easier than a front foot elevated, which is easier than a rear foot elevated. It's like, not that one is easier than the other. It's just, it depends on what that person is limited in. Mm-hmm. Somebody doesn't have internal rotation at their hip. Yeah. Uh, a front foot elevated split squat is going to be much tougher for them. Right. Compared to a rear foot elevated split squat. Right. So obviously you're loading more with a rear foot elevated split squat, but there are some people who you give them a rear foot and you're like, oh my gosh, why is this person able to crank that out? Mm-hmm. And then a front foot elevated split squat's like, yeah, they're getting deeper into their hips. It's like, that's partly true, but that's not what's happening mechanically on the inside yeah. of your body and your hip. And yeah, I think the big thing, like when it comes to the PRI is if people honestly just understand basic breathing mechanics, like when you inhale, everything externally rotates. Mm-hmm. When you exhale, everything internally rotates, then it makes it easier to be like, okay, this person doesn't have internal rotation. Great. I need to create um, exhalation strategy or a pronation or adduction strategy um, at that area of the body. And then take it a step further, mix that with some type of understanding of gait mechanics. If you can map, if you can understand what happens to the three phases of gait and the two phases of breathing, that's all you need to know. For sure. For sure. I agree with that too. I mean, especially for us here, speed is at a huge priority. I mean, 
we use a lot of like data analysis for speed, speed and force velocity profiling. But something that we do too is that, that part of the gate mechanics because I truly believe that a lot of the assessments that you're talking about also will determine my kinetic motion during a sprint. So I know where people are certainly limited in different parts of the body, that's going to get a different trajectory and, and what have you and, and go from there. And so, but I do, I, I like that approach, I think just consolidating to that. That's kind of where I was getting at is in terms of like your inhalation, exhalation strategies are one and gate are two, you know? And, and one thing I tell new coaches who want to get into it is almost like, and we talked about this right before I did the sleep thing was um, like, I like to say the steering or the pelvis is like the steering wheel for power. And it's just mm -hmm. going to tell you a lot, which is gate. You know, and that will, that will kind of tell you everything. Well, that's just it, right? Like if you, if you actually look at gait, you have a heel strike, mid stance, and then you have like a light stance or toe off, right? Mm -hmm. the, the heel strike and toe off are both external rotation measurements. Right. Both inhalation. And then the mid stance is pronation. So for me, and you know, at, in, in, in relation to sprinting, um, I see the pronation as more of a transition period between the two phases of gait, right? Because that's where you're absorbing force. That's where max propulsion is. Right. Is if you watch a sprinter, they won't land on the heel. They usually land on the mid-step because they need to get off the ground as quickly as possible as they get in through that, um, you know, like, like the, the later phases of sprinting, right? Not the acceleration phase, but like more top speed. For sure. Going to land more on the inside of the foot, which is great because that allows them to propel quickly off the ground. So that pronation is super important for these athletes who, who need speed or who need, need to be able to cut because they need to push off of the inside of the foot in order to get to the other side. Yeah, for right. sure. And this is almost selfish for me too. So something that I've noticed a lot with athletes is, you know, during that top speed mechanics, as they come into that plant leg, a lot of times they will be in mid stance, but I also notice a lot of heel strike, but athletes who have minimal heel strike in top speed need more of that in their supplemental work. So like they're in all of their like main exercises. So something that I've talked about a lot is like aligning your strength and your speed work together based off the kinematic motion, right? In earlier phases, acceleration, greater ranges of motion, late state, you know, late stance, push off. But in the weight room, they're getting so much of that already. You would say like, okay, well then we need to do more of that kind of kinematic work gate-wise training. But in my opinion, and what I found is it's almost like the reverse Whereas like, I know if I have a basketball player who's always in late stance propulsion in the weight room, I actually need to give them more heel strike and more hip shifting because they don't have that kind exactly. of, where do you fit on that a little bit in terms of like what you see with a lot of the athletes? Yeah. So, I mean, I say this in my evolved mentorship that I have like a, like a three finger rule, right? So like the index finger is for, in terms of gait, right? Yeah. The index finger would be, um, Heel strike, the middle finger is mid stance, the ring finger is that late propulsion or toe off. Okay. Right. If they're in the third part, so if they're in the toe off position or the ring finger, you need to bring them back to the middle finger, to the mid stance, okay. and then give them the heel strike. Got right? Because that's essentially what you're doing with a, a heels elevated exercise, is you're bringing them back through the face of gait. So they're able to move forward, right? Because if you have somebody who is in that later phase of gait and this pronation, they don't have the ability to dorsiflex anymore because they're already starting there. 
So bring them back through a phase of gait into heel strike or more heel strike, then they're able to get back into the dorsiflexion because you've brought them back a little bit, right? And again, that's how you modify your exercise. Like you program split squat. Again, you can have people who are doing front foot elevated or they're doing rear foot elevated just based on what they need. Again, as you said, from a sprinting standpoint, they can't access the inside of the foot or that pronation, then we need to give them activities that are going to bias that. That could be something as simple as, hey, you're gonna hold the weight on the same side as the leg is forward. We're doing ipsilateral, but you are gonna do a contralateral because I need to bring you back into that, from that gait cycle, because you spend too much time on the ground, so you don't have the ability to go through the full cycle. You're skipping a step. Sure. You're just you're the, two, the, the, the middle finger and the ring finger. I need you to get through you know, the index finger first, and then you're able to use the glute and the hamstring and the quad and that co-contraction at the calf as well to be able to propel forward and not lose any of these energy leaks, right? Franz Bosch talks about this hip lock position. Yeah, it was just... Yep. Yeah, when you go into a that toe off that later phase, because the reality is, is you need a stiff hip and a co-contraction between your hamstring, quad, and calf to create the stable base to allow you to propel off your toes. Otherwise, your hip is going to hike or it's going to drop. Your torso is going to bend to the side, and then you're going to lose the power going into the ground because you don't have that stable base. Yeah, and I was going to say, so from kinematically, yes, and then also just kinetically, it's like a rubber band, right? If I'm stuck at that end point of my rubber band, I need to go back to what they don't have to restore position and kinetics, and then I can be able to project better, I guess, if you will. Exactly, yeah, you're just pulling the slingshot back, right? Because, you know, it's like they've released the slingshot already. They've, re they've reduced all of that elastic uh, energy you don't have the ability to store it. You don't have the ability to go through the full, you know, another way of saying it is when you go through gate, um, when you hit the ground, you're storing energy right. and then it keeps on storing. And then as you pronate and get through that max pronation, that's when you reduce or you let go of the elastic band and the elastic energy to push you forward. Right? Like we're all talking the same language. It's just different different perspectives and so but it's great to have multiple perspectives because then you have you alone could have multiple viewpoints of the same thing and be able to accurately make a better decision and that's what knowledge is knowledge is just you're able to and even experience um you're able to make decisions faster um you know even though there's an overwhelming bit of knowledge right or um information that's coming at you yeah, for sure. I mean, you're just combining your experience with the application component based off of all your reference points because you just have, you know, you've just seen it so many times. So here's something interesting though. So obviously we talked about your three assessments. What's like one, let's come up with one right now, maybe like we'll do this together. What's like one cool KPI for sprinting that we, I would recommend to another coach that they should look at 
in order to go through this process that we just talked about. So maybe outside of the toe touch and all the other ones, what's like one maybe ballistic assessment I might be looking for? Um, that's simple. Like obviously we have ours, but I'm trying to think of everybody. Um, well, I really like, I personally really like single leg broad jump. Okay. Right. Just because I'm able to see the difference in terms of power output. The other thing too is as the leg makes contact with the ground, again, I also like to take pictures for sure. Right? And just take pictures of like very like that, like the iPhones have like the quick snapshot mm -hmm. so you can take pictures throughout the entire, um, phases and on my Instagram I did that with a step up and you can see the different phases of gait I kind of go through cool. Um, cool. during the step up so like you're doing one movement but there's three different things going on at different parts and so single leg broad jump for me is really good because it allows you to identify um, side to side limitations um, and it also by taking pictures you're able to see the efficiency of them being able to land and then again, get off the ground. Yeah, for sure. And something too, I mean, we actually, that's one of our tests that we use three KPIs for like when we test our athletes, but for that also something that I try to tell a lot of people talking about back to France Bosch was hip extension almost before knee extension. When I look at, when I'm looking at that motion and that just tells me so much about it. Um, Any thoughts though, kind of on that, just in terms of. Yeah. To me, when I see somebody who, who jumps or runs or who walks even lifts when they do like a deadlift for example who extends their knee or just hyper extends their knee when they're doing any of those things that's again somebody who doesn't have um, the proper hip mechanics they can't access that internal rotation of the hip and so they need to create it somewhere and they do it right. at the knee, or they do it at the foot by turning the foot out i mean you see these runners who when they land their foot splays out especially as they go through the mid part again that tells me you know you're not going through the all three phases of you know the the um the foot contact so then you're not able to access parts of the hamstring parts of the adductor parts of the glutes that allow you to propel you forward instead you're using your knee and you're using your back to push you forward right not you're, you're not becoming efficient eventually you're going to break down some case or you are going to limit how much power and speed you're able to essentially produce. I, um, I was talking to a good friend of mine yesterday. He was presenting on Evolve Mentorship, Dan Sanzo, and he works for Northeastern University. And oh. you know, he was telling me that um, one of the things that he did was he uses force plates a lot, just jumping. And he does a, an intervention and then he sees what happens. And he was working as one athlete that kept on just not doing well the conditioning tests. He did no conditioning, just cleaned up mechanics, and she was able to do it no problem. Right. Hmm. So that's the thing. It's like we're always talking about we need to develop this energy system, we need to develop speed. But the reality is, is like power is a mixture between strength, velocity, and mobility, right? Like that's really what it is, right? So, and, you know, and it's very important to clean up the, the yeah. yeah, for sure. And I was going to say, even to that point, look at humans in general, right? We're, we're conditioned to take the path of least resistance. Exactly. So our normal orientation is going to dictate whatever function that I'm looking for anyway. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and yeah, and an important thing too, to also con 
to you know consider with all this talk about cleaning up compensations is some athletes need a certain amount of compensation, right? If you're like a, a 40 meter sprinter, yeah. right? You know, you need to lock yourself more into the sagittal plane to be able to drive forward. Because if I give you too many options or too much variability or too much range of motion, then again, that is energy leaks in itself because your body has way too many options. Instead, you just need to run fast and forward as quickly as you can with some semblance of rigidity. But when we talk about GPP, right, um, versus SPP, like it, it, we really have to understand that at the beginning phase of an off season, let's say, we want to clean up some of this or we want to give the athlete maybe a little bit more variability than they're used to so they're more adaptable. And then as you get close to the competition, that's when you lock up that variability and you go after performance because performance is lower amounts of range of motion and variability because it's specific to your sport. But at the beginning phase, when you're trying to reinforce these movement patterns, this is the time where we're able to clean up some of these compensations so they don't get hurt when they go into you know, overdrive, right? Yeah, no, it's so weird because I actually just talked about this. I just made a post and I did a talk and I was like, in earlier phases of acceleration, when you're prepping even for what it could be speed or whatever your sport is, right? That GPP and saying that performance is rehab. That's where we do a lot of like our change of direction, close change. We do a lot of more bounders and single leg work and we increase all of that variability within that athlete. And then greater ranges of motion, more in acceleration. And then as we begin to kind of narrow in that focus a little bit, that is really important motion to get a little bit more specific, work on more of our max strength work to align our CNS, obviously with all that stuff. And um, no, it's been, that's funny. So here's one thing that we'll kind of switch gears quick, just talk a little business, but at what point do you think it's almost too wrong to overcorrect an athlete? For example, LeBron James walks in your door. You know, there's not too much that you can say to him in terms of a four-time NBA champion, arguably the greatest player of all time, right? So where, where's the line for you? I like that walks in. I'm just saying, hey, man, you do what you want to do. You <laughs> want, like, you want to go on the stability ball and you want to do bicep curls, that's okay. Right. You know, because you're the person who's going to um, affect their athletic, right, or athletic ability. You know, that's just a freak of nature, right? But, you know, I think one of the big things, obviously, is pain. Look, they're coming in pain. There's something that's not going right. Yeah. Right? Otherwise you know, if, if somebody's like that high level, it's like, you don't touch too much. You just ask them, Hey, what have you been doing? What do you like doing? What feels good for you? Yeah. Yeah. I love doing this. I don't like back squats. Great. Fine. We'll do back squats. No problem. Right. Like, but you know, I'm still going to make sure that, you know, he has some aspect of range of motion. I mean, everybody should be able to touch their toes at some level because otherwise you're just too stiff to be able to move. So I would change some things like that. Um, but honestly, it's, uh, I'm not going to touch, I'm not going to change too much because they got to the level they're at um, because of, you know, their natural athletic ability. I mean, I, I worked with this one NBA player who, I mean, he came in because of a rehab. He had a knee reconstruction surgery. So we did a lot of stuff, normal stuff, but, like he hated the weight room, 
right? Yeah. I hated being in there. And it was like, yeah, man, like you're great. You made it already. Like, you know, mm. but there's some things that are breaking down and you know, it's why I work with a lot of people who are in pain first. And then we move into fitness because pain is the biggest motivator. Like yeah, they're going to listen to me when they're in pain and then they're going to work on things that they otherwise wouldn't have a chance to work on. Yeah. On, but the reality is, is like, yeah, if they're very good at their sport, I don't, I don't try to change too much. I just try to give them as much adaptability as possible um, without taking away some of the compensations that they've created to, to do that. I mean, look, somebody comes in who's like LeBron James and has super flat feet. I'm not going to try to create an arch there. No. no, no, no. But I might do like a front foot elevated split school again to try to like allow them to go through that full range of motion. I'm not going to limit the range of motion. Um, but yeah, it's going to be based on what they want to do. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And we have that here a little bit, like literally it comes down to like your psychological processes, almost like just creating a perfect training environment, some entertainment, what music do you like? Like, let's just get it done. You know, exactly. you know so. they'll do it right. Like if they feel like they're in control and you know, you know, they like you as a person, like they're gonna, you know, they're going to do things, which is a huge thing. You know, I, again, I talked about, talked about this last week in my mentorship, which is, about communication and how to communicate effectively because the reality is is like the training you can be the best trainer you can be the best strength conditioning coach physiotherapist whatever it is but if you cannot communicate properly you cannot create that relationship with the athlete or the client it doesn't matter how good your programming is like you need to create that rapport so they feel like they want to not impress you that's not the right word but you know it's a partnership, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so we're actually, um, we talk about this a lot in our group and we just say like, you're connecting almost science to business, right? You have two types of efforts as a human. You have physiological efforts and psychological and both are quantifiable. And your quantifiable psychological efforts are what you're talking about, building relationships because what's my retention process like? What's my client experience like? What are all these little variables that I can actually control? And we here at Varsity House, admittingly actually, until the last year, has spent more time on building client experience that has resulted in you know, just being very fortunate of having a super successful gym. Now that we have the buy-in, we have the free will for the education and the training part, which has been really fun because like we have this community, these people love what we're doing. I could tell them that if you pick your nose and scratch the bottom of your foot, you yeah. know, that's going to help fix your back pain. And it's like, no problem, Adam, I'll do it. Exactly. Yeah. That's what my clients like. My clients are like, yeah, you tell me what to do and I'll do it. And some things look funky. Well, and of course. Because, you know, some people I work with, I've worked with for three years and they're just like, yeah, you do what you want. You know, <laughs> you're not going to hurt me. Or I say one thing and you're right. Like they listen and, but that's the client experience. And look, you look at like people outside of our industry, like companies like Amazon, right? Sure. Or Starbucks. That's what they did. They doubled down on client experience and they made sure the client experience was at their forefront in terms of their their decisions because there's a difference between client experience and, and sorry, customer experience and customer service. Mm -hmm. You hear about customer service. What do you think about? There's been a problem, right? Yeah. I'm servicing you like the phone companies, right? I'm going to call customer service to complain or to get this fixed. 
Whereas customer experience is as soon as that person walks into the door, it's like how they feel throughout the entire process, even when they leave. Because if they leave and they feel great about the experience, what are they gonna do? They're gonna be your walking, talking, marketing machine because of you guys were genuine and helped them. Right. Felt comfortable and they felt like you were listening to them, which a lot of people do not do is listen. No, yeah. And I mean, this is business, right? Switching gears here in the private sector industry. It's like, we try to, we try to tell, excuse me, a lot of guys in our group. It's like, look, I don't care if you're Charlie Francis, France Bosch and like Ron Huska combined. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's all about, and the truth of the reality is, is that if you want to build a successful six, six figure, seven figure business, it's actually going to have little to do with your actual training knowledge. You know, people can't wrap their heads around that concept yet. Yeah, I have, I've, I've worked with some clients. And this just gives you an example of exactly what you said. I've worked with some clients who know for a fact that their trainer has been hurting them, right? They do like crazy exercises and they hurt them. And so you get some, you get a lot of people who, you know, aren't the greatest trainers or therapists or whatever, but they are they built a relationship where that person does not care. It's like, Hey, fix me. I'm going to go right back to that person. I don't care. I like that person. And so that just goes to to show that it doesn't matter. You know, as long as you're, you're building that relationship, that's at the forefront of, you know, because you read any book about business and they will tell you client acquisition is extremely more expensive than client retention. For sure. Get a new client is costs a lot even to lose one but to maintain one is a lot more um, profitable and easier to manage yeah 100 percent. so speaking of that you know what were some of the trials that you faced when you were running your business so you just leave the clinic you're going door to door what's the deal yeah so i left the clinic and you know the reality was it's like you leave a business that you know you have 40 hours a week working one-on-one with clients and like making quite a bit of money and you're doing well to saying, I'm going to do it myself because, you know, I worked at three different clinics and I built up my business there. It's like, well, if I can do it for them, why am I just do it myself? And you know, hard thing initially was finding out like what price to charge, you know, what was, what was, valuable enough for me for my time and for them what were they like not charging outrageous but also not charging too low um am i going to lose this client like at the beginning i'm like oh my gosh like i got a new client like i want to hold on to them but then i said to myself you can't do that that's when you lose your you know or that that's when you're being disingenuous it's just like you're trying to do everything you can to maintain that client it's like no it's like you know you just give them a good service no different than what you were doing Um, so the big thing for me was honestly, was, am I going to be able to build this enough? Did I make a mistake? Because the first few months, you know, I I had five clients. Um, but the clients that I had were like the best people you'll ever meet. I mean, they just referred everybody to me and I was able to build quickly, which was amazing. I mean, I did no marketing. I had no online presence. You know, Instagram, like at that time, like there's no way I'm posting or anything like that. Um, You know, I was just 
I had my car and I was driving around person to person and I was working at whatever time they would give me. Mm-hmm. They wanted me at 6 a.m. at this place across the city and then 6 p.m. another. I st- stuck myself in traffic rush hour all the time um, just to work two hours in a day. And I did that. I asked them if they, if they had anybody that they would, uh, you know, recommend me and yeah, I mean, the biggest trial, honestly, was like, was I making a mistake? And like, did I, was I able to make a, a substantial business? Because I wasn't doing any marketing and I didn't understand any of that. I mean, one of the big things that I made at the beginning of this was um, I got a website built and I paid a lot of money and it was terrible, terribly done. Like I just, it was, it was a mess, but I learned a lot Yeah, first six months, but it also allowed me to build out my system and you know, how to invoice, how to, you know, manage income and expenses, how to do all the boring business stuff that nobody likes to do. But, you know, once you have those infrastructures in place, it's easy to build, Mm -hmm. fail a little bit. And so with that though, so you're super successful, you're in person. Was the infusion of a pandemic the turning point for you to go completely online or how did that kind of start to transpire? And what would you say to other coaches who want to make that transition into the online world COVID or not? It's just kind of like, this is what I want to do. So funny because in October before, so last October before COVID hit, um, I have a client who is, you know, this tech mogul, very successful in the tech industry. And and he said to me, he's like, Alex, what are you going to do if, if everything, you know, turns belly up tomorrow, right? You can't go into people's houses. Like, how are you going to leverage yourself? I don't know if he has any inside information or what's happening. No, <laughs> well, this guy, this guy's just very smart. He just yeah, yeah, he saw that online was coming and yeah. like Peloton had just come out, right. the mirror or whatever it's called. And um, these technology things were coming out. And, and then another guy, another one of my clients, I went out to dinner with him and he just said, you know, one-on-one's great, you're doing well, but like, how do you make a business out of this, right? Luckily enough for me, all my clients are entrepreneurial and successful mm-hmm. people. So I just get advice all the time, which is incredible. Like it's the best learning experience possible. Um, so he said that. So anyway, so March hit and for the first three weeks, I didn't, my clients were, you know, everyone was trying to figure out what's going on. So my clients weren't there. I had a couple of them. Like I was working maybe three hours instead of like the 30 hours I was normally working. Yeah. And I was asked by Katie St. Clair to talk on her mentorship. And I was like, okay, well, I better put some stuff together, you know, cause I've never done this before. I don't know what to talk about. So, you know, she told me to talk about exercise selection because I have a little bit of a different approach towards that. And so I started doing that and, you know, my fiance was home too because she was, she's a teacher and she was um, doing online teaching. And I just spoke to her. I said, you know, maybe we should, maybe I should do this because it went really well with the mentorship talk and Katie was really pushing me. She's like, you should do this yourself. And so I eventually, what I did was I'm like, okay, let me test this. So the presentation I did for her, I just put it for sale on a site. I built, you know, my fiance, she actually built the website. We put it on there. She's yeah. super techy. I know nothing about tech. And um, I just like, okay, I'm going to put it out there, see what happens. Start to sell. 
And I was like, great. Okay. Well, I'm going to start posting on Instagram. See, you know, I'm not, I, I, I was never comfortable with it. Yeah. Um, I didn't know how to communicate what looked good, what didn't look good, what time of day and all that stuff and stuff that I've just figured out since then. And yeah, it started doing well. And then I did my first mentorship um, in June, which was kind of like me figuring it out. I initially it was four weeks and it just felt like I was cramming information into four weeks and yeah. people were taking it, you know, super kind people were like, yeah, it was great. But like, I knew that it was like too much information. Right, right. The second one again was four weeks. That was about a couple months later. Um, I kind of reconfigured it because my name is evolved mentorship. And so I evolved it. So every single time I want it to evolve and be better. And so now it's eight weeks, which is more spread out and sequenced so much more effectively so that each week we cover a different topic and it builds on top of each other. But anyway, that's a long wind of saying, you know, in terms of online, you know, going online, you have to determine like, where, like, what is your purpose? Like, are you tailoring to, um, general population are you tailoring to trainers um, because trainers in general population two totally different markets yeah one, sure. if you look at my instagram it's it's tailored towards trainers and therapists which is why i use a different language if i was talking to a general population i don't use words like expansion and compression because no. yeah. that's scary words you call yeah. something compressed right right but the reality is is like just start posting and start advertising you know, what you're about, like who you are, you need to have a mission statement. You have to understand what you stand for. Um, don't even think about how you're different than other people yet. Just get out there and start posting. That's what I did. You know, I didn't, didn't try to differentiate myself. I just tried to post and just try to get comfortable with it. Just try to post every single day and clients will come because they will notice. They'll be like, you know what? I relate to your message. Right you have to have that message so yeah so what you can do is if you have a very loyal client or even like a friend or something reach out and test out a software like a, a train heroic or what do you have team builder stuff like that just try try to play around with it start posting and then after maybe like a couple months or something you start advertising that you're getting programming and you will get some people because people will relate to your message for sure so, um, I personally do still in-person stuff, but this has COVID has, you know, allowed me to really focus on the online, which is something I've wanted to develop for a long time. Yeah. Um, I don't think, you know, there's a magic potion in order to, you know, do online effectively. Um, I don't think there's like a framework in which you follow to get clients. It's like, once you follow a framework, that's kind of when you start becoming disingenuous and people will see right through it. So yeah. just put yourself out there, start posting, start reaching out to people. You know, I mean, you and I got connected through this, which is amazing. Right. right? And so, yeah, I mean, I guess that'd be my biggest advice is just understand what your message is, um, which is going to lead to what your brand is. Mm -hmm. and, and every single piece of content that come and give content out, give it out for free, you know, give, keep on giving because eventually things are going to start to make its way back to you. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I think one thing that I've noticed too, is we, um, 
you know, for everybody listening as well, is that we uh, were in the middle of revamping our whole business of strength and we were doing really, really well and things started to escalate. And so I kind of took the ownership of that. And part of that is, is you guys have to understand when you make this transition, you have to give more than you take. And you have to give, there's a, there needs to be a lot of proximity and it's a lot of work, right? Because for any of us, like you and I, okay, we've been on this podcast for an hour. We could easily go for another two hours to just talk about our knowledge, right? No problem. Yeah. But here's the issue that you're going to run into. You have to do what I've noticed, at least the little things that most people just don't want to do, right? You're going to have to get up early and work on that part for your site. You're going to have to work on building in the infrastructure for this. You're going to have to sit down if you want to build out your YouTube channel and spend hours and hours and hours and doing those things. Because like you said earlier, as you alluded to, once the infrastructure is in place, then you have the modality, just go bananas with your content. But that you know, something never comes from nothing kind of thing. It's like, you have to do that little stuff first that nobody talks about really. I don't think you talk about really. I don't talk about it. a lot of people who are doing it. Don't really talk about it. And so you have to, I think, embrace that part first before you can begin to just do, you know, or just teach, if that makes sense. Yeah. That's something I didn't mention. You know, I've since March, I've been working 16 to 18 hour days. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I'm working with clients, okay? But when I'm not working with clients, I'm answering messages through uh, my membership, which is people who graduate from Evolve go into this education platform. So I'm answering messages, I'm putting out content. I'm figuring out what I'm gonna post for the week. Right. I post every day. Um, I then have to build something out for my website. I have to manage my booking. I'm my own secretary, I'm my own accountant, right? I do all this stuff thinking about doing a podcast maybe in the new year, like all these different things. And luckily, thank God that, um, you know, my fiance, she's going to come on and we're going to do this together. And she's going to really help me a lot because she's great with the technology stuff. That's the other thing. It's like, you do have to put that time. And then on top of all of that, you still have to increase your knowledge and continue to educate yourself. Like I still, I'm still reading about, Right now, I have about four books that I'm reading, um, two audio books and two um, like paperback books. And, but like, it's non-negotiable for me. It's like I block out my schedule and be like, during this time, this is what I'm doing. Then I'm doing this. Um, you know, you have, to, you have to protect your time because it's not an infinite resource. No. You just have to organize it effectively. And yeah, I spent so many hours putting presentation together writing out my model like it's taking time and effort and if you're you know you have to be willing to do that but it will pay off 100 percent. yeah i mean if you don't find yourself sitting on the couch at 11 o'clock after an 18 hour day you know possibly with a drink in your hand you may not be yeah. doing it right initially you know and you gotta love it too right like sure. I, I love it like even though it's long days i mean I, you know, I, I try to respond to every single person's message. Like anybody who reaches out to me, I reply to them. Right. Yeah, sure. Like I'm one of those people who doesn't reply and I love doing it. Like I love continuing my education. I love talking to people about this stuff because I'm such a nerd with the stuff, mm -hmm. but it's just something that's passionate to me. And like, if you're passionate about it, it's not going to feel like work. It's like mm -hmm. play, right? Mm -hmm. No, really, it's the truth. It really is. I mean, it's like, oh, shoot, I have to do this thing, but it's 10 o'clock on a Tuesday. 
You're not going to mm-hmm. be like, I'll get it to it tomorrow. You're like, sure. I, I, you know what? I don't mind sitting down and getting this done right now or whatever. The other thing too, Adam, is, you know, I found throughout my time during this industry so far, and even listening to podcasts is kind of what you mentioned before was you know, people keep things so close to the chest, right? Like they don't want to give out information because they're like, oh my gosh, if I give this information out, then I'm losing my, you know, silver bullet, so to say, right? Like right. I'm, like I'm giving away my information, but like, that's not how people perceive it because everybody comes from a different experience. And so although you're giving away your information, which you should, you shouldn't be beating around the bush and, and keep everything close to the chest. Like people ask me questions. I tell them the answer. Like, yeah. and I'm like, Oh, well, you know, it depends on this and this and this. It's like, no, no, no th- this is what my thought process is. What do you think? Right. Or they don't talk about their assessment. Or they don't talk about how they, program and it's like keep on giving keep on you know and you're going to continue with their education your education as well and as long as you keep on progressing you keep on putting out good content like you don't have to worry about you know giving everything away because the reality is is people still want to hear what you have to say and how you do things they just want to be be a fly on the wall and see you assess somebody or see you program and or more importantly, how you communicate with people because you can teach everybody everything that you know, but you can't teach people how to communicate effectively if they don't have the experience. Yeah. And even to that, to just continue with that train, if you will, <clears throat> is that when someone comes to see you or when they want to know you, remember people only buy, let's just talk straight facts from people they know, mm-hmm. like, and trust. The more yeah, I see, you see someone on camera, the more you see the way they interact, like just talking to you now, and this is, a, we've talked a lot before this, but just having this conversation, I'm like, damn, like I even, this is even cooler than I thought. Right. And as that potential customer, you just begin to see that person. I saw him right here. I heard him here when they're reading your words, they're thinking about you. And so yeah. it becomes a no brainer that like, Oh, join this membership for this. Like I can hear Alex telling me to do this. I'm going to go do this. And so, by doing that, you are literally building your personality. I don't like to use that word, but it's the truth online, you know? Yeah, it's funny because I, you know, I have people keep on telling me, even my fiance, she's like, you need to post more videos of yourself, right? Because it's like, you can read words, but as you said, like, it's totally different if you hop on a call and you're like, hey, I get to actually hear how this person is. Like, this person isn't just you know, I post a lot of education content, but like, there's a lot more to me than just that. Right. You know, like, and and so, but like that other aspect also comes into play. It's like, Hey, I had this one, you know, this one boss who was like, I only hire people who I can have a beer with. And like, that's the way that I do the same thing when it comes to investing in my education. It's like, I relate to that person. I'm definitely going to buy to that person because that person is a good person. They're genuine. And I want to support those people and no different than when I bring, you know, guest speakers on, on mentorship. It's like, like they have great information. They're very smart people, but they're good people. Mm-hmm. That's what I like about it. Right. So. Yeah. And even, you know, well, and before we talk about kind of your evolve, evolve mentorship, cause I want you to expand on that before we kind of wrap up, but look at like this, I'm going to, I'm going to say this cause we're talking about a post pandemic world. We're talking about online. Who has the most attention in our world? It is the people that you see, hear, and view the most. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so it's just like you look at anybody who's on TV. I see them on movies all the time where I'm always seeing this person. They may not be giving me anything valuable, but yeah. if you can combine that with providing something that's valuable, you're like, wow, I love that person. And they give me a lot of information. Yeah, it's familiarity, right? It's like you, it's like you buy a car and you never saw that car before and now it's everywhere, right? It's yeah. just like that car dissonance, right? But, you know, again, it's just like how many times have you seen a movie and you're like, oh, if that person's in it, I'm going to go see it, right? 100%. And, and it, it's really no different. It's just you're creating a connection with your audience and then that person is going to buy from you potentially at some point, may not be right away, and that's right. okay. I mean, my first, again, like my first product selling didn't really start kicking off until I really started posting more and started engaging with the audience a little bit more and giving stuff away for free, right? right. Because that's what you need to do. You need to show that you're not just in it for the money because people will smell that from a mile away. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, for sure. So just speaking of money, something you can't give away for free, just talk about the Evolve Mentorship. What does it entail? Uh, where can people find you and what have you? Yeah. So as I said, the Evolve Mentorship has evolved over the past. This is the third iteration. It just finished yesterday, actually. Very cool. Starting January 18th. But essentially what it is, is just a breakdown into my entire model. Like it talks about how like gate mechanics and like how to look at the foot to identify what's happening at the hip at the rib cage at the shoulder so you can look at somebody's feet and be like okay well i know what's going to happen from a shoulder range of motion perspective talking about the assessment process that i take people in and essentially how to maximize it so again if you're seeing somebody do a toe touch like what is happening we go through an eight-week process of talking about assessment programming um, looking at different body parts and seeing what's going on. Um, we also talk about communication, but the coolest thing in my opinion is because each week builds off each other. So we start with the rib cage and the pelvis, then the foot, then an overall global assessment and then compensatory patterns and then programming. I have a Slack group where I encourage everybody to post their assessment post pictures of their feet, which sounds weird, but it actually makes sense. No, it does. And then so each week you're like, okay, well, we took pictures of the feet. What do you see at the feet? Okay, great. I see this phase of gait. I see this. Then we do the assessment. Okay, now post your entire assessment. Now, based on the feet, what do everybody see that are similarities on the rest of assessment? Then we talk about programming. It's like, okay, well, based on those pictures now, how would you program for that person? And so... And then we're also talking about other questions within the Slack group, but it's just great because the whole learning process continues. And honestly, like what I found from mentorships and even other courses is they didn't really have access to the actual speaker, but anybody who's taken my Evolve knows that I, I answer every single question. I mean, last time there was 35, we already have 30 people signed up right now. Like, I answer every single question from all 35. And even if there's like 20 questions each, like I spend my time because I want to create the best education, um, you know, experience possible. So we go through everything from the ins and outs of the body, how to communicate effectively, how to assess, and then taking the assessment and then programming. So yeah, that starts July, or sorry, January 
I was going to say, I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> no, I started January 18th and uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's honestly been my, my favorite thing because I get to interact with people all around the world. So it's a bit selfish for me because I just love talking to people and getting to know people. So yeah. no, absolutely. But it's not selfish because you're, you're solving problems and it's very engaging and helpful. And, you know, I've looked through all of it. Obviously that's why you're on here and communicating with, with our audiences. So before yeah. we close, this is something I like to do. It's just a rapid Q and a. Okay. Yeah. And so okay. we'll go through kind of quick and just, what's going on in your brain. So number one, most athletic player you've ever worked with or trained inside the facility or gym. So that basketball player, I was talking about the NBA player. He had a total knee reconstruction surgery. Um, they said he would never play again. They also said that it would take at least a year to recover. Um, not saying it was me at all. It was definitely him, but he recovered within three months and he was playing within four months. Who was it? What's that? You can't say it. Can't say it. Okay. <laughs> cool. But just natural athletic ability, um, and even so, even when he had the knee reconstruction surgery, when he did a single leg jump on the other side, it was still like it was insane how much power he would he would get through. He had his cast off within two weeks, which you're wow. supposed to keep on for a month, yep. and had full range of motion in his knee within two months. Just natural ability. Um, natural strength, natural power, and just athleticism. You lie him, and here's the thing though, like you lie him on the table, let's say, and you do hip internal external rotation, doesn't move very well. But when you give him a weight, you give him a ball, he moves like the most fluid person you'll ever meet. And so just because in a low level environment, you're assessing somebody, doesn't mean that's how they're going to transfer their sport. They find a way to, to, to reproduce that. So I would say he's definitely the most athletic athlete I've ever worked with. For cool. For cool. Very cool. Smartest person you've ever worked with. Smartest person I've ever worked with or, or spoke like, to. colleagues spoke to. Spoke to. Um, honestly, I, you know, and I say this a lot. I think um, one of the biggest mentors of mine growing up or going through this industry was Mike Roncarati, who uh, works in the NBA uh, no one, not a lot of people know him because he doesn't post a lot, but he used to work for Atlanta Hawks. And I was taking, there was a time in my career where I decided to leave a job. I'd rather quit the job than actually have money come in. And I spent six months with no job and I just invested in the three PRI primary courses back to back over three months. And I was draining my bank account with rent and I still was like, I have 600 I have $700 in my bank account. I'm going to spend 600 of it and take PRI courses, right? I'm just going to do that and went all in and he was in town and I spoke to him about how to integrate this stuff and able to, you know, talk with him over the years. And he was somebody who was implementing this stuff a long time ago. And so I say definitely the smartest and such a genuine person. That's the third time I've actually heard from him. I was, I was trying to find him to get connected with him. And just like I wanted to talk because I work with primarily basketball players. I work with over 150 basketball players a year, like individuals. Yeah. Yeah. I can find him. I guess he's just like a ghost. He's a ghost, man. But you find him. Like I heard him first on Mike Robertson's podcast. Yeah. And I just reached out to him. And that's what I encourage everybody to do is like just reach out. Just say, hey, I really appreciate what you're saying you know, love to learn more. Like people are willing to help, you know, right. 
not everybody, but like, you know, just ask for like, I knew he was coming in town because he was playing the Raptors. So I'm like, Hey, do you want to go get a coffee? He's like, absolutely. Right. You know? And, and so it's, uh, yeah, definitely someone to get connected with because that guy's super smart. Well, what are you currently reading? You alluded to it before you got four books going. So what have you got? So I have, what I used, what I do is I bunch my learning. So in a three month period, I read one topic just so I'm able to read multiple different books, but it's still within the same realm. So right now I'm reading about um, kind of like business philosophy, so to say. So right now I'm reading, I'm reading, um, the Almanac by Naval, who's this tech mogul. He's got a podcast as well. Um, great book. Um, I'm actually reading The Psychology of Money. I'm not sure who, who, who uh, wrote it. Um, I'm listening to, well, this is not really business, but it's just out of interest. I'm listening to Matthew McConaughey's new biography, which is pretty oh, good. Wow, he, I know, because he's, he's actually reading it. So that's awesome. I'm doing that. And then there's one more called um, 12 Months to a Million Dollars. And it was written by a guy who is close with Aubrey Marcus, who started on it. Um, yeah, Aubrey, Aubrey Marcus. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So he was just starting. He's, he just basically created a company uh, within the health industry. And it just sounded interesting. Like I always like to hear different people's perspectives. I, I read a lot of biographies on um, like I read the Netflix biography, I read um, Jeff Bezos, Tesla, and, and stuff like that, right? So I always like to hear different people's perspectives on things. So those are the four. And then I'm also reading, like from an X and O standpoint, I'm reading um, uh, Biotensegrity. Yeah. R, I think his name is. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's funny. I mean, two things I was going to say. One book that I think you would enjoy would be called, there's two of them actually. I have one right here, but it's uh, Traction by Gino Wickman. Yeah. And then obviously uh, Profits First. Profits First. Yeah, that was something I was looking into. So I'll definitely, that'll definitely be next on the docket. Yeah, for those, um, they're just good. I mean, even, it doesn't matter if you're brick and mortar, if you're online, just the model and just understanding the framework applies, you know, so. Reality is it's all about systems and principles. And when you read outside the industry, you understand how, we can see similar patterns within our own industry sure. and we're able to apply it. So that's why I'm reading outside the industry because first of all, I didn't know anything about business before. We didn't learn that anywhere. And as you said, that's kind of the course that the mentorship that you're doing, which is amazing because I think it's, I think strength coaches and therapists, like they just, we need more information about business. And so that's why I'm reading business because I'm just self learning it. For right. Sure just to understand how to run things smoothly. Yeah, definitely. So this was amazing. This was really fun. Where can people find you? And um, just tell us kind of like what, you know, different avenues that you got going on. So yeah, no, Adam, I really appreciate this. Um, have a great time. So you guys can find me at my uh, Instagram, which is at my first name, Alex dot That's my Instagram. Um, you can find me at my website, which is www.resilientedu.com. <clears throat> That's essentially my education platform. Like during COVID, I've just been doing a lot more education for trainers and therapists who want to essentially evolve their model and, and take a different perspective. Um, one perspective that I'm honestly, that's the, that's what I use with my clients and what I have found to be successful merging all these different systems. 
Um, and then my email is alex.resilientedu at gmail.com if you guys want to reach out. Um, I have a couple, I have my Evolve Mentorship coming out January 18th. And then I'm planning on a couple courses, one with uh, Katie St. Clair, which should be coming out either in a couple weeks or early next year. And then, yeah, just going to start to um, do some online programming um, outside of my in-person clients. I'm going to open that up to everybody in January. So, yeah, a couple things on the docket. And uh grow from there and see what happens for sure no i appreciate this so much thanks guys like we said we'll post all of alex's information in the show notes as well so have a good day guys